wants us to respond with faith and to say, Lord, I enter into the story and I give my yes to you, whatever the cost. And that's what we're going to look at today. So let me just pray another blessing over us. Father, I just ask in Jesus' name that your Holy Spirit is here. I pray that you make the word come alive to us, that the word becomes a double-edged sword that cuts in between the soul and spirit, the bone and marrow, and opens us up, Lord, to receive what you have for us today. Here we are, wholly available. Have your way this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So Mary of Nazareth, if we can uh, click to the next slide. and just, uh, I'm just going to highlight a bit of the background, a bit of the history, because I like history, and it's good to, to, to draw a context so that we know what we're talking about a little bit more. So here you have a map of Israel at the time of Jesus, and there is Nazareth up in the circle there, up in the north in Galilee, uh, not far from the, lake, uh, the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee. You see Nazareth there, and just above it is Cana, about a few miles away was Cana, where Jesus did his first miracle. And then further over, you have Tiberias, which was uh, built in, in, in honor of the Caesar at that time, and it was only being built at the time of Jesus. So Jesus didn't minister in Tiberias. It was only being constructed around that time. Uh, but there further up in the north of Galilee, you have Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is where Jesus moved his headquarters to. When he started in Nazareth, um, the people rejected him. Remember, they tried to throw him off a cliff. And so he moved his headquarters not long after that over to Capernaum. And that's where he did a lot of his miracles and a lot of his teaching. And that's where he began to call many of his disciples, fishermen, of course, on the edge of the Lake of Galilee. So um, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. But before that happens, you have the Annunciation to Mary, who's up in Nazareth with Joseph, who is also up in Nazareth. If you just click again, you'll see where um, Bethlehem is way down south. Bethlehem, just south of Jerusalem. You have Jerusalem there in the middle, more or less of the circle. And about five, six miles south, you have Bethlehem, where Jesus will be born. That is the city of David. But we're up north in Galilee. Now, if you look on the right, you'll see a little bit of the history. Nazareth is not an old village. It was only established maybe a hundred years before Jesus was born. You've heard the phrase Galilee of the Gentiles. Yeah, Galilee of the Gentiles. Why is it called that? Because at the time of Jesus, uh, the Galilee region was swarming with Gentiles. Since uh, Israel had been conquered by the Assyrians uh, way back in the 700 BC period, they brought in foreigners to populate the area. Uh, And then came the Persians, and they brought on people. Then came the Greeks, and they brought more people. And so by the time of Jesus, it was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. It's swarming with Gentile, foreign tribes, foreign people. But there was this period called the um, Hasmonean period, uh, around 140, 100 BC, uh, where a, a, a priestly family took up revolt against the Greek empire because Alexander the Great had conquered the area and his descendants ruled the area. But about 100, 150 years before Jesus, um, this priestly family took up the sword and said, we're going to fight back. And so they liberated Judea, and eventually they liberated Galilee from the, rules, from the rule of the Greeks. And so then they said, let's repopulate the area with some more Jewish families. So they started sending some uh, Jewish clans, Jewish families up north and said repopulate it, make it a bit more Jewish. And so one of the the groups that went north was clans from the house of David. 
The house of David still existed. It had been in exile, if you like, since around 500 BC. The last king had been dethroned and taken off into exile by the Babylonians. And since that time, you hadn't had a king of David sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. But the family still existed. The house of David still existed. Uh, but it was keeping a low profile because the Romans were there and they didn't want any um, uh, rival to Caesar, of course. But um, the house of David moved north and established this little village called Nazareth over a, a ridge and by a spring, a natural spring of water. And they called it Nazareth, people think, from this messianic prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, who would be called Netzer in Hebrew, meaning the branch. And it's from the prophecy in Isaiah. So the word Netzer has the same roots as the word Nazareth. And so it seems that the village was named after the prophecy. From our house, the house of David, the Messiah will come. So shall we read together, if, if you can read this text from where you're sitting, shall we read the prophecy in Isaiah 11? Just together with me. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruits, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Amen. My microphone's on, isn't it? So I can wander a bit away from... I haven't switched it on. <laughs> I forgot to do that. Thank you. I'm on now. Good, so I'm a bit more free. So this is this amazing prophecy from Isaiah. It talks about what I call the sevenfold spirit of God. You see this, the sevenfold spirit. It's the spirit of the Lord, first one. It's the spirit of wisdom, second. The spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Sevenfold spirit, the spirit of completeness, the fullness of God himself shall rest upon the Messiah who shall come from the house of David and be called the branch, the branch that shall spruce out, that shall grow out from the house of David. And so Netzer is a prophetic messianic title for the Messiah. And so the village is named after that. And so this happens, 63 BC, the Romans conquer the area. So this was planted maybe just before uh, that happened. Okay, next slide. Now, when you think about Nazareth, was it in good standing among the population at the time? Did they think highly of Nazareth? No. Do you remember the story from uh, the Gospel of John where Philip gets Nathaniel and says, come and find them, we find the Messiah, come and, come and see? Look at, look at the conversation here, number one on the bottom left. It says, we have found him. This is Philip speaking. Of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, so they thought. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the phrase. Now, why was that? The house of David, you need to understand, was not held in high esteem among the people. All right? People blamed the monarchy for the disaster that had happened to the nation. People said, it's you and your, your royalty that has brought us to this low place through your political corruption, through your idolatry that you led us into as a nation, 
through your economic injustice, that you corrupted the people and the country. And because of you and your monarchy, we were overcome by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Persians and the Greeks and everybody. And we've been the tail and not the head. So the house of David was seen as part of the problem, not part of the solution among the common people. The prophets, on the other hand, looked to the house of David for salvation. The prophecies in Jeremiah and Isaiah looked to the throne of David, looked to the house of David. The Messiah will come from his line. But among the people, the house of David was held in low esteem. And so that's where you get this phrase, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the house of David village. They're the reason for our problems today. Um, also at the time of Jesus, not around the time of his birth, Galilee was a hotbed for patriotism against Roman rule. It was, it was quite nationalistic. It was very, come on, let's rise up and throw the Roman occupy, occupiers away. Let, let's get rid of their bondage. Let's get rid of their yoke. Let's be free. That's where the zealots come from. Have you heard of the zealots? One of Jesus' disciples was Simon the Zealot, and they thought he came from Cana in Galilee. And in fact, uh, Nathaniel came from Cana in Galilee. And so Cana was a hotbed for zealots, um, resistance against the Roman oppression. In fact, in the book of Acts, if you read through in the book of Acts, it talks about um, Judas the Galilean who started a revolt against Rome. He's mentioned there. So Galilee was this hotbed of resistance. And they were looking for a Messiah who would come with the sword. But Jesus, when he came, didn't come with the sword, did he? He did his first miracle at Cana, the hotbed of, of zealots, of zealotry. But he didn't say, I'm going to overthrow the Roman Empire with the sword. He turned water into wine. Now that was a sign of sacrifice. When you come into the temple, you first have the water where the priests wash. And then you come to the altar where there's blood. You have water, then you have blood. You have water, and then wine. The wine represents the blood. And so Jesus had his first miracle in Cana, in the place where Simon the Zealot was, even where Nathaniel was, where this hotbed of resistance was. He's saying, I'm not coming to overthrow the empire by a sword. I'm coming to sacrifice myself. It was the first sign that he gives to the disciples. He's the high priest who sacrifices himself. That's how the kingdom of God will come, through getting the heart issue sorted, the sin issue, not the sword. The sin issue in our hearts needs to be dealt with first. Okay, so that's a little bit of the background. When you think of the birth of Jesus or the, the Annunciation coming to Mary, even in Nazareth, that kind of political situation, that, that's the context. Okay, let's go on to the next slide. Here's our passage for today from Luke's Gospel. So, let's read it together on, on the left here. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. All right. Now, a couple of things I've highlighted from this part of the text is Gabriel and the fact that Mary is said to be a virgin. Very important. The first thing is, Angel Gabriel comes. This is a supernatural annunciation. What does an annunciation mean? It's when you announce something. You bring news about something. Here you have an angel coming. 
Why does, it, why does God send an angel? Why is it necessary to have an angel? Because the content is supernatural and the content is prophetic and only God could have this knowledge to pass on. Look at what the angel says. He announces the conception, the birth, the gender. It's going to be a boy and the name of the child before it even happens. We'll see that on the next slide. He gives all this knowledge beforehand. He's done something very, very similar not so long ago with Zachariah, remember? And Elizabeth. He came to Zachariah in the temple and he said, you're going, you're, you're going to have a child. It's going to be a male child. You're going to call his name John. He gives the same prophetic information even before it's happened. But here you have this wonderful prophetic word that's going to come. Now that's the first thing. It's a supernatural announcement. The second thing is Mary is said to be a virgin. It's highlighted here in Luke's gospel. Luke and I believe um, Matthew are the only two gospels that talk about the birth of Jesus. Mark doesn't. I believe Mark starts straight in with John the Baptist, the voice calling in the wilderness. And John's gospel doesn't. John is more interested in the pre-existence of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then the Word became flesh. But then he goes to John the Baptist ministry as well. But Matthew and Luke hone in on the physical birth of Jesus. And both Matthew and Luke stress that Mary was a virgin. So both, both witnesses agree. She's, a, she's a, in a virginal state when this conception takes place. We talk about the virgin birth a lot, which is great, it's true. But more importantly than the virgin birth, it's the virginal conception. It's, it's this miraculous conception that takes place in her when she's a virgin. Now, the word they use in Greek, for those who like Greek, is parthenos. means virgin in Greek. And it's from the Hebrew, from the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, which uses the word alma. When it says, remember the prophecy given to the king at the time of the house of David, but also to the whole house of David, he says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The Alma, the virgin, will uh, conceive and give birth to a son. And you will call his name, uh, and he will be called Emmanuel. God is with us. This is the prophecy in Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The young woman, the virginal young woman, will give birth to a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel. That, the wonderful Hebrew word, Emmanu means with us. El means God. So Emmanuel means with us is God, or God is with us. It's a, it's a very literal prophecy. So it's saying God himself will come through the young woman. The Alma, which means, it literally means in the, in the Hebrew, a young woman of marriageable age who's a virgin. It's used in the Old Testament of Rebekah. Do you remember when, when Abraham was looking for a wife for his son, Isaac, and he sent his servant up north to get a wife, and uh, the servant came across Rebekah, who came out with water to let the camels drink and so on. She is called an Alma, a virgin. She would have to be to be a suitable wife for Isaac. Yeah? So it's, it means virgin. It's also used of uh, Miriam, Moses' sister, who was quite a bit older than him. And do you remember when, when uh, Moses is put in the basket of reeds and he's floating down the Nile and Pharaoh's daughter finds him when she's bathing with her entourage. 
And then little Miriam's hiding in the bulrushes and she comes out and she has a dialogue with Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, Shall I go and find a wet nurse so that the child can be looked after? She's quite old to have that kind of, you know, conversation. She is called an Alma, a virginal uh, young woman, young girl. She may only have been 12 or 13. Uh, but she's called an Alma. So the word means in Hebrew, it's ver- it, it, it assumes the person is a virgin. And it's translated in the Greek as Parthenos, a virgin. Okay, so that's important. When Mary received the power of the Spirit on her, she did not know a man. There is no man involved. This is why it's called the incarnation. God himself coming in human form without the help of a man. So it's very important. Now, she is said to be betrothed. In Jewish culture, it was very interesting how they did marriages. I've put down here, I've broken it down how the process took place. In those days, it wasn't like in our culture where we marry out of romantic love largely. You choose your partner uh, for yourself freely. In those days, um, one family and another family got together and they were arranged marriages, normally within the same tribe. And the father of the, of the bride and the father of the groom would actually meet and do the deal first. And then the couple would come together. So the normal process was the father selects a bride for the son. So if Joseph's father was still alive, we're not sure about that, he would have done that process with Mary. Then the groom, in this case Joseph, would pay what is called the bride price, which is like a type of diary, but the other way around. So the groom would pay the family of the bride-to-be and say, since I'm taking a, a member of your family away and you're losing her to us, we'll pay you the bride price. It was normally a certain amount of shekels. I don't know how many. And then the groom would present the wedding contract called the ketubah to the bride. And this was lovely. When the ceremony actually happened, he would say, this is what I promised to do for you. I promise to feed you, clothe you, look after you, love you, nourish you, cherish you, and all that I have is yours. And then she would be asked to give her yes. You could never be asked to marry against your will. Even if it was an arranged marriage, the bride would have to say yes. And so she would then presumably say yes, give her consent, and then they had this wonderful thing where they drunk from the cup of the covenant it was called together. Now, in our culture, we have an engagement ring. So we exchange engagement rings at that point. For us, it's not legally binding. Okay? An engagement ring, it's, it's socially acceptable, and it means that there's a kind of relationship that is serious and is looking towards full marriage. In their culture, when they drunk from the same cup of wine, publicly in front of friends and family, that was legally binding. They were saying, we're not in this, and we're together. And the only way, therefore, to separate even from your betrothed was through a divorce. And that's why it talks about in Matthew's gospel why Joseph was in such a state when he realized in this betrothal period, which could last for about a year, his wife-to-be was now pregnant, not by him. And so he was really stressed. And he wanted to divorce her, put her away quietly because she could be stoned. So uh, it, it was a, a serious thing, the betrothal. It was a real kind of legal binding agreement. 
And then after she, they had drunk together and so on, the groom would present his gifts and then he would go to prepare the home, which is a lovely thing. Normally the groom built on the marriage home to the parents' home. They had multi-generational living. So they would live together so that as the grandparents got older, the grandchildren, they could see them and play with them and the children could look after their parents as they aged and so on. It was multi-generational living. Jesus picks up on that in his ministry teaching when he talks about coming to get us again. He uses this, this marriage analogy. Remember Jesus says in John's gospel, I go to prepare a place for you. This is from marriage talk. The groom goes back to the father's house, which in our case is in heaven, to prepare a place for the bride, the church. If I go there, I will come back and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Yeah? That's taken directly from Jewish culture of marriage. So that's the idea that we, when the trumpet sounds, when the groom is coming, behold, the bridegroom comes, the bride rises to meet, and we go out to meet him in the air, the scripture says, and then we go back with him to his home. I go to prepare a place for you. So it's a lovely idea. So this is what would have happened in the background, just before the Annunciation. They would have done all this, and Joseph would be busy preparing the marital home, waiting to go and collect his bride, who was in a place of expectation, um, and then she would come and live with him in the home together, and they would then start sexual relations, and they would then start their home. But until, during the betrothal period, you stayed chaste. It was only at the actual, um, when the groom came and collected her, they would have a week-long celebration. And that's when you could consummate the marriage, but not before. All right? So that's a little bit of background about what's going on. Just as the angel comes, she's in this state. Okay, the next slide, please. And let's read the text together. And then I'll look at the pictures and explain them in a bit. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Wow, that's the Annunciation. It's a mouthful, isn't it? There's a lot of meat in that. He just throws it all out there. And you can imagine Mary trying to digest what is happening, what is, what is being said to me. Now, um, let me just go through some of the highlighted bits in red. He comes, the angel comes to her and he says, Greetings, O favored one. In some translations it says, O highly favored. It's a wonderful word. Um, to find favor with God is a beautiful thing. How do you find favor with God? You humble yourself under him. Scripture says, you know, that if you humble yourself, God will lift you up. If you honor God with your life and put him first, he will honor you. Because he can trust you with glory because you're just the vessel that points all the glory back to him. 
So if you position yourself in life to humble yourself under God, you can receive favor. That's just a general principle. On another level, we are all favored in Christ. The same word that is used here about Mary is used in Ephesians 1 verse 6. When Paul says we are all favored in the beloved, we are all accepted in the beloved through the glorious grace of God. So that favor that was given especially to Mary uniquely for this case is also given to us as believers in Christ. In Jesus, we receive God's favor, grace upon grace upon grace. And part of the victory in the Christian life is learning to live out of that place, not to earn his favor, but to live out of his favor, to know you are beloved, to know he says, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're my child, my grace rests upon you because of Jesus. In Jesus, you're complete. And out of Jesus, you can live to serve others. So that grace is also for us, not just for Mary. Hallelujah, praise God. So, but the angel says to your greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then it says, she was greatly troubled at the saying. Okay, here on the top left, because I've, I've been to Israel a few times, I've been to Nazareth, and if you go, there's two sites they highlight for you. The first one is the well in the village, which until this day still exists, and the tradition is, uh, part of the tradition is, the angel first appeared to her at the well when she'd gone to draw water. And over the well, uh, from the early first century, they've built a church. This is the, it's a Greek Orthodox church. And if you go into there and you go to the very back of the church and you go down steps, you come to still a living well. There's a spring. You can drink the water directly. All right? And so the tradition is that the angel first appeared to her there and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And the tradition is that at that moment she was greatly troubled and she ran all the way home. And she, her home was about two, a couple of hundred meters away. And then the tradition is that the angel met her there and continued the rest of the Annunciation and said, Do not be afraid, Mary. All right. So whether it happened like that, I don't know. But that's the tradition. So Mary's well, and then her home. Now over her home, they've built a huge church today. Huge basilica of the Annunciation. But if you go right down to the bottom of it, there's a small cave. And they say Mary's home was built into a cave, which was quite common in those days. And even in modern times. In Israel, people still build into caves because it's natural kind of protection. Uh, and uh, infrastructure. And so they say, this is where the Annunciation happened. So he says, you have found favor with God. Behold, you, here's the fourfold promise. You will conceive. Hasn't happened yet. You will conceive. You will bear a son. So you'll carry the full gestation period all the way, nine months. You'll, you'll give birth. Um, and it will be a son. That's the gender, a male. And you will call his name Jesus. All given ahead of time. What does Jesus mean? God saves. It comes from the word um, Yah. Yeshua in Hebrew. Yeshua is from Yah, which is the short form of Yahweh. So Yahshua, Yeshua, Yahweh saves. God saves. So Jesus represents God's solution to the human problem, the human heart. He will bring salvation. So you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And hasn't history proved that? It's the greatest name. 
He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Now this is what sets Christianity apart from any other faith. This is unique, the incarnation. God, to be more specific, God the Son takes on human flesh in the womb of Mary. This is the miracle. The message leads to a miracle. Uh, He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God, that's God the Father, will give to him the throne of his father David. In other words, because he's taking on the flesh of Mary, now I believe this is personal belief, it's an egg of Mary that the Holy Spirit comes on. So God the Son, through the agency of God the Spirit, enters into Mary's womb, joins with her, becomes a descendant, one of her eggs, and is born through her, and therefore has the right to be called Son of David, has the right to sit on David's throne. This is all part of the prophet. God joins himself to our humanity. Truly God and truly human. Two natures, one person. So he's the true mediator. He's God and human together. It's unique. No other religious leader has anything like that in terms of their their makeup. This is what sets Jesus apart. He's fully divine and fully human. So he'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Now, an office kingdom, there will be no end. I don't know about you, but my position is the throne of David is associated with his second coming. When Jesus returns and he reigns over the whole earth, he will sit on the throne of David. And the throne of David, if you read the prophecies, is always associated with Jerusalem. Jesus will make a new heaven and a new earth, but first he has to come and bring peace. He will judge the nations. He will rule over the nations. And that's always connected with the throne of David. Right now, Jesus sits on the Father's throne in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. Since the ascension, he sat down at the Father's right hand. That is called the Father's throne. But the throne of David is always associated with the earth and the kingdom of God coming to this world. And so the Messiah has to sit on David's throne to bring peace among the nations. So it's a a prophecy about the second coming. All right, next slide. Now, doing well. Um, That's the message. The message points to the miracle. Let's read the text together here. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Hallelujah for that. So here it is explained better. Mary wasn't asking in unbelief. It was faith seeking understanding. How how will this be? Because I'm a virgin. Don't know a man. I'm betrothed, but that's not going to be consummated for quite a while. So how will this be that I will give birth to the Son of God? And here's the answer. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now in the next slide, we're going to unpack that. The word there used is very important. A beautiful word. The overshadowing of God. Um, but let me just say on the, on the right here, I said the conception probably starts straight away. We assume that. 
So after this annunciation, the Holy Spirit began to overshadow her and began to conceive Jesus within her womb. Uh, and nine months later, he was born in Bethlehem, way down south. They had to make the journey. It's about a four-day journey. Could you imagine making that when you're highly pregnant? Whether it was on a donkey or some other means of transport. And when you get to Bethlehem, the tradition is it wasn't a stable. It was a type of cave. When you go there and actually see the place, they say it was a cave where they kept animals. Um, so it was, it was a very difficult journey and a very difficult birth, I'm sure. When God calls you, it doesn't always mean it's going to be a bed of roses. And we have to get that into our heads. You can be bang smack in the middle of God's will and still go through really difficult times, but you're in God's will. Difficulty doesn't mean you're outside. Um, but the conception probably takes place straight away, and this goes way back to the prophecy given to Eve, which is why I've put a picture of Eve with the serpent around her feet, having sinned, but kind of meeting Mary way down the prophetic timeline. Remember the prophecy given to, to Eve and Adam, but especially to Eve, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman, virgin birth, the seed of the woman, not the seed of a man, the seed of a woman. So how does that seed come about? Through the Holy Spirit. So there you have that, that meeting where you can kind of see how God works in history. Where Eve said no to God, Mary in this passage gives her yes to God. And so God begins to undo the process. It's all, it's all through God and it's all through Jesus, but he works through people. <laughs> and so you have your part to play too. All right, now at the end of this passage, it says, no word from God will ever fail. There's a Greek word there that is important. It's the Greek word rhema. Rhema means word. No rhema word of God will fail. The word rhema means a specific word from God for your situation. It's when God understands exactly your context and he speaks a word into it that has a lot of meaning for you, maybe nothing, doesn't mean anything to anybody else, but for you it's a word of God, from God. When you read the scriptures in your quiet time, for example, and a word jumps out at you, that can become a rhema word for you. God speaks to you through a text, a promise. Right? That's a rhema word. God is speaking to me, not to my name, to me. Well, when the angel says no word, he's saying no rhema word, no specific word from God can ever fail. When you get a rhema word in your life, it can change your whole life. It can change your direction. I had one in the start of 2011. God woke me up. And, or it was actually 2010, towards the end of 2010. God woke me up in, in, during the middle of the night and spoke to me in my heart. Not an audible voice, just a deep voice in my heart. David, I haven't called you to academia. I was doing a PhD. I was finishing it. I haven't called you to academia. I've called you to preach my word. But use the tools from academia to support the preaching. And that's what started me on a whole new... That same day, I applied for the job in Harrogate. And God opened the door. Within months, I was from Belgium to Harrogate. A rhema word from God can change your life. A no rhema word from God can ever fail. All right, the next slide. Now, here you have this wonderful idea of the overshadowing. It's beautiful, powerful stuff. And there's prophecy in it. 
The word is used in two different contexts, but they overlap. In Luke 1, it says, The Holy Spirit will come on you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. I've put at the bottom the Greek word, episkiazo, to overshadow, to envelop, to fill to capacity. God's overshadowing presence, which always brings his plans to pass. So the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, Mary. Now, the same word is used in what is the authorized Greek translation. <laughs> At the time of Jesus, there was a Greek translation, and it was an authorized translation by 70 scholars. It's called the Septuagint, for those who understand that history, because 70 scholars translated it. In that Greek translation, which was very common, which Paul quoted from in his letters, it was the common authorized translation. They use the same word when they talk about the glory of God overshadowing the tabernacle, overshadowing the Ark of the Covenant, the glory of God. We call that the Shekinah. You maybe you've heard that word. When God's presence through the Holy Spirit dwells in a place and overshadows something with his presence. It's glorious. Well, that word is used over Mary and it's used when Moses built the tent which had the Ark of the Covenant. The glory of God overshadowed the ark. Now, the point is, what was in the ark? What was in the ark? There were three things in the ark, and they're all prophetic about Jesus. This is why there's a connection between the words. This is, remember, overshadowing is a Greek translation. In the Hebrew, it's maybe, it says settled upon. But in the Greek, which Luke would have been familiar with, it's overshadowing is the word. Same word used as he uses. In the ark, three things. One, the Ten Commandments from Moses from the Mount Sinai. Right? The Word of God. Secondly, a pot of manna from their wandering in the, in the desert. The angel bread, they called it. Like bread from heaven. And the third was the rod of Aaron to set him apart as the high priest. It was the rod, the rod that budded miraculously with almonds. Yeah? Those three things were kept in the ark. Now, how do they point to Jesus? One, he is the living word of God. This is it. He's not just words written on stone. He's the living word of God himself. In the beginning was the word. The word was God. The word took on flesh. All right, so it points to Jesus. Secondly, he's, he, how is he manna? Well, Jesus said, I am the, the bread from heaven. I am the eternal, you know, the bread that gives eternal life. I'm the bread from heaven. Feed on me. This is the great teaching. He's the living bread. And then thirdly, he's not a priest from the tribe of Levi. He's a higher priest from the order of Melchizedek. That's deep stuff. But it basically means I'm a higher type of priest, the true eternal priest. The priests from Levi had to sacrifice animals constantly to cover people's sins, life for life, the animal's blood for your sin, constantly. The, the priest from the order of Melchizedek sacrifices himself. Doesn't sacrifice animals, sacrifices himself. I give my life for the sins of the world. And it's an, once and for all, it's an eternal offering. Remember the blood and the, uh, the water to, to blood, uh, water to wine at Cana? I, I'm, the, I'm the priest who sacrifices himself. So the bottom line is this. The overshadowing over the Ark of the Covenant had these three things in it. That is what is prophesied in Jesus. 
He is the, the high priest. He is the word of God. He is the bread of life. And it's happening in Mary's womb. What was symbolized in the ark is now coming to place organically, in real terms, in a real person. The Holy Spirit's doing it. The Old Testament prefigures the New Testament. The New Testament fulfills the Old Testament by the Holy Spirit. So it's a wonderful imagery of overshadowing. When you get yourself under God's presence and let him overshadow you, your life can be changed. The glory of God can dwell inside you and grow you into the image of Christ. Okay, next slide. This is, we're coming towards the end. Let's finish uh, with the last part of the passage. Let's read it together. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now a couple of quick points on this. Mary says, I am the servant of the Lord. What a response with all of this stuff coming at her. And yet she she submits and she humbles herself and she says, yes, God, I'm your servant. Now the word she uses there is doule. You've heard of the Greek word doulos. Doulos means servant. Uh, The feminine form is doule. She says, I'm a doule. I'm your bond servant. I'm your maid servant. Have your way with me. I submit to you. Whatever you want, I'm yours. It's a wonderful act of self-offering. I'm the vessel, fill me, use me, do whatever you want. You want to use my body for the incarnation? Use it. Let the Holy Spirit overshadow me. Let all this stuff come to pass, which is wonderfully miraculous, way beyond our comprehension. But here I am, wholly available. It's the same word that is used in Acts when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost and he's quoting the prophet Joel. He says, God says, I will pour out my spirit on the, man, the, man, on the, the male servants and on the doule and on the female servants. My male servants will receive my spirit and they will prophesy. They'll be filled. In other words, if you want to be filled afresh with God's spirit, and I believe when you become a Christian, you get a spirit. It's the spirit that makes you a Christian. But you can have constant fillings of the Spirit. If you read the book of, the book of Acts, there's, there's occasions where the Spirit fills them afresh. Acts chapter 4 is one, which is later than Acts chapter 2, when they're first filled. You can go what Paul says in Ephesians 5, keep on being filled with the Spirit. You have it up, be filled with the Spirit on the wall here. There, there's a sense that you, when you position yourself and say, Lord, here I am, use me, it's all yours. You open yourself to be filled by God's Spirit. Because it's less of you and more of him. That's what the Spirit is always looking for. Less of you, more of him. Become a vessel. So she positions herself like that. And then finally, she gives her yes to God. And there it is again, this, this word in Greek, rhema. When she says, let it be to me according to your word. She's saying, let it be to me according to your rhema. That's the word in Greek. Your specific word to me. Let your rhema word come to pass. Don't let it fail in my life. Let it bear fruit in my life. It's beautiful. Now, the point is, she said yes. It was her giving her consent. She said yes, not knowing what it would entail. When you look at Mary's life, you realize God put her through a lot. She had struggle after struggle. 
she didn't know, I'm sure at that moment, the pain that she would carry in her heart because of her choice. Would she be taken out and stoned as an adulteress, someone who's playing the harlot? Oh, you're pregnant, it's not Joseph. Well, who was it then? A Roman soldier? How come you're pregnant? Well, they stoned people in those days for that. Remember, uh, Stephen was stoned. But not just that, the woman caught in adultery was brought to Jesus. Remember? Just 30 years later. You know, the the law says we should stone her. What do you say, teacher? Putting him on trial, on on a test. People were stoned for for adultery in those days. So she she was on the line with this. But she said yes to God anyway. Um, Stoning, persecution, they had to flee. Herod comes and he finds out there's a king of the Jews born. He's paranoid. He's a megalomaniac, Herod. Great architect, but but mad. And uh, he tries to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. So they flee to Egypt as refugees. Did she know this would happen before she said yes? No, she had no clue. When you give your yes to God, you're stepping into the mystery. I've called it the mystery of God's will. You don't know what, what God will have for you. But he's asking you, will you give me your yes? Will you trust me in the pain? Will you trust me in the persecution? Will you trust me in the darkness and the questions? And why, God, will you still give me your yes? Because when you do that, my power can come through you long term. When you go on with her life, the prophecy in the temple, a sword will pass through your soul. Remember that the Simeon, the prophet, the priest in the temple, a sword will pass through your soul, Mary. She has to watch the crucifixion. In fact, if you, if you do the Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem, the way of the cross, one of the stations you get to is called um, the, the fainting of Our Lady. It's a Catholic kind of thing. But the point is, it's, it's where Mary is said to have fainted when she saw the state of Jesus carrying the cross. So she, she just couldn't bear it and she just fainted. That's the tradition. She, she's had great agony and pain. And of course, even at the cross, her husband isn't there. Joseph, we think, has died by this time. He was an older man. And so Jesus has to give her into the care of John. He's not even one of her children. Her ch- half of her children didn't even believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. And so there's all kinds of struggles and issues. Did she know what would happen to her? A widow going through all of this persecution. uh, When she she didn't know, but she said yes. And that's the challenge for us. And I'm just going to close with that. If you just go to the next slide. This is about stepping out of our comfort zone. And I'm just going to ask us to... Pause and reflect on this. Is God calling you out of your comfort zone today and this Advent time and as we look towards 2018? It's easy to stay in a rut. It's easy to go around the mountain a hundred times. But what if God is saying, leave the mountain and move? What if he's saying to you, follow my glory cloud because my glory cloud is moving and I want you to move with it? Will you give your yes to God? Will you step into the mystery of God's will even though you don't know all it may entail? There's a quote here from a lady who's a a Bible teacher in the States for women and she's a very good teacher for them and she says this, God is using all of your experiences, both good and bad, to develop your character to match your calling. 
God is interested in developing your character to match your calling. Otherwise, your calling will never be fulfilled because your character will not keep up with it. A lot of people destroy their ministry because their character is flawed, even though their calling is high. So God wants to match it. And then he says, outside our comfort zone, though, is where we experience the true awesomeness of God. Outside the comfort zone is where there's stress and fear and risk, but that's where the growth takes place. That's where Mary experienced all that it was to say yes to God. And she ended up in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, being filled with the Spirit like the others, and being a witness for Jesus in her own life too. So I'm just going to ask us to stand just for a moment, if you don't mind, just standing where you are. I'm just going to close by, by quiet, quieting our hearts and just, you know, it's, this is you and God. This is why we're here this morning, to do a bit of business with God, and to say, Lord, have your way. And just in the quietness of your own heart, I'm just going to ask you the question and as if God is speaking to you and you need to respond. God, I believe, is saying to us this morning, will you give me your yes again? For many of you here, you've already said yes. Many years ago, maybe more recently, you you said yes to God. But God, I believe, is saying more directly, will you give me your yes again? A recommitment, a renewal, a willingness to say yes, Lord, even though I don't know all that that means. I'm willing to step out and trust you and open my life to you. Just going to be quiet for a moment. And imagine Jesus speaking that to you and what is your response to him? Lord, in the name of Jesus, we want to give our yes to you as King of kings and Lord of lords. Receive us as your people. Amen. I know time has gone. Do we have time for one song to close? Or is, I know it's late, but um, is that right? That song, Holy Available, Here I Am, Holy Available.